You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Walter Stahl, founding father of the Circular Economy and founder director of the Product Life Institute. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. We've been reading your book, The Circular Economy, A User's Guide, and you're recognized as one of the key people who formulated the whole concept of the circular economy. You coined the term cradle to cradle. Yes, because in the, I guess, the 1980s, somebody came up with the term cradle to grave. And I mocked myself about this by saying this was a marketing upgrade for grave diggers, because what we need is cradle to cradle. In other words, you have to close the loops. The circularity, of course, has existed in nature for a long time. Actually, nature circularity is by evolution. There is no plan. There is no liability. There is no preferences. It's simply the cycles such as marine tides, CO2 and water cycles, plants and animals. And basically, by evolution, the best solution wins. Also, there is no waste. Dead material becomes food for other animals or plants. Now, early mankind survived by depending on these local natural resources, sharing a non-monetary chaotic symbiosis dominated by nature. Then this poverty or necessity-based society changed when mankind, humankind used science to overcome shortages of everything. In other words, the Anthropocene with nuclear energy, petrochemicals, metal alloys, we became independent from nature, but we overlooked the fact that these new man-made anthropogenic resources or synthetic resources were unknown to nature, so nature could not deal with it. And that means that we, mankind, has to take responsibility for it. So more and more important is, are the invisible quality cycles of this immaterial world, cultural values, sharing and caring, responsibility, even liability by manufacturers of products and materials for what they are doing. Because we have to get away from this liability, uh, legacy waste of the Anthropocene. Now, the future, I hope, will see nature and man living in synergy. Or otherwise, mankind may have a big problem. And synergy means that in the future, we need intelligent solutions. That means we need circular sciences, we need circular energy, we need circular chemistry, circular metallurgy, so that we really close the value, the, the loops, the material and object loops. And we have to make what we have we have to make it last. On a personal level, I always tell people, enjoy. We have to learn to enjoy the use of the belongings we have and take care of them. So instead of replacing something, if the manufacturer tells you we have a better, bigger, faster, safer, greener smartphone or car, we have to resist and say, no, I have a car or I have a smartphone. That's all that it fits my purpose. So you may have a better one, but the one I have is sufficient. And this is fighting against this marketing push from manufacturers, especially for young people, is a very tough fight. 
Can you describe the founding of the Product Life Institute and how you work with different economic actors to bring about those changes in our economy and in society? Well, by training, I'm an architect, not an economist. And I work for an American research foundation in the 1970s when we had the oil price crisis and unemployment in most European countries. And I knew from my activity in building that renovating an existing building is more labor intensive, but uses only little, few energy, little materials. And so I thought this might be true for other products too. And I managed to convince the then called Commission of the European Communities to give me a research funds to study the potential for substituting manpower for energy. So basically my driver was job creation and energy re consumption reduction. The environmental benefits of longer surface life basically come as a collateral, come automatically with it. So if you double the lifetime, the service life of, a, of any object, car or a house, if you double the lifetime, you reduce the input of resources and the output of waste by 50% without changing anything at the product. So the key element is time. We have to include time in our economic optimization. The whole globalization economy of scale of the linear economy was based on moving labor-intensive production to the places where the lowest cost of labor was. Now with robots, it has completely changed, but it hasn't hit most manufacturers yet. Robots, a certain type of robots cost the same thing in Asia or the US or in Europe. So the cost is the same. So in order to reduce production costs, you have to reduce all the other costs, transport, liability. And so it's better to have one robot in every town or in every region in a small building and then using 3D print and the digital technology to feed the robot, to print, to produce whatever the customer needs on site rapidly. So you don't have any spare parts anymore. Spare part management is the most expensive part of manufacturing. And you are much faster than if you have to ship something from Shanghai or wherever. So robots typically have changed it's called reshoring production. And because it's using digital technologies instead of using cheap long distance transport. And it's faster, it's more economic. And of course, it creates local employment. The same for remanufacturing. If you have a, an, a broken, let's take an, a car. Normally, a car becomes useless because the engine or another key element doesn't work anymore. Now you can either change the whole car or you can simply remanufacture, which is the repair with technological updating of this key component. If you look at the economics of remanufacturing, and this has been shown from Xerox to Renault to General Electric, a lot of people never believed it and then experienced it themselves. The return, return of investment of a remanufacturing plant is five times the ROI of a manufacturing plant for the same. So if you want to make money as an entrepreneur, do remanufacturing, not production. And then the Caterpillar engines is a key example 
when you start doing remanufacturing, you realize that you can also design a diesel engine for easy remanufacturing. And then you make even more money. And then you are even closer to your clients. So it is a virtuous loop, but you cannot see this loop from the outside. You have to do it to believe it. And this is in many of the business cases, business models of the circular economy, and especially the performance economy. Once you do it, you can see how you can permanently improve it. You cannot see it from the outside. And I think that education must be also key to this. And I, early education for people to really understand how that they can be a part of it. I think that for every stakeholder to be on board, it would be useful for that to begin at an early age. There are several on a macro level. People is a renewable resource. It doesn't grow on trees, but it is a renewable resource. And it's the only resource with a qualitative edge. We can actually greatly improve it by education, vocational training. And if we don't use it, these skills will rapidly degrade. So we are spending a lot of money educating people, but then we also, nation states, have a moral obligation, I think, tend to use these people in a productive way. And uh, when also in the States, when in my generation learned or did it by curiosity, we took everything apart, clocks and gearboxes, engines. And I know that in the States, it was very popular with in the 50s, 60s. In Eastern Germany, it was with the Trabant, with the famous, uh, very simple car. And now with the electronics, these do-it-yourself skills have been largely lost because electromechanical things, you can repair yourself or easily find somebody to do it. As soon as you have electronic elements, you basically cannot repair it. And then the temptation or the need even is that you have to replace it because you don't know. There's always somebody who can repair it somewhere in the world. Ask Kyle Wien from ilfixit.com. But it needs an additional effort. It needs engaging yourself, motivating yourself. Throwing it away is the easiest for the owner user easiest way to solve the problem and buying a new one. Well, the problem is energy is only one thing. What we really, we have to solve three problems. We have to create a low waste society through incentives to change individual behavior from consumer to user through loss and waste prevention, intelligent resource management. We also have to create a low carbon society by preserving the water, electricity, CO2 emissions embodied in physical assets or through innovation in green electricity and circular energy. And the third challenge, which is probably the biggest, we have, to we have to create a low anthropogenic mass society by preserving these existing stocks of infrastructure, buildings, equipment, vehicles, and objects. The only strategy I know that can fulfill these three challenges is a circular industrial economy. Now, the last point, the low anthropogenic mass society, is simply because in some years ago, the rapidly growing anthropogenic mass has become bigger than the world biomass. And that, of course, means we are destroying the biomass because we have a limited planet and we are destroying biodiversity and replacing it with a synthetic man-made materials and objects. And this in the long term means we are killing ourselves. So we have to 
stop producing anthropogenic mass, except in countries that don't have yet a, a sufficient infrastructures for education, health, living, sufficient food to feed the population. But it's, it's very difficult to reduce the, to convince even governments that they should stop producing new motorways and find better ways to use the existing motorways or airports or whatever. The, the energy question, there is the trick to green energy is hydrogen, green hydrogen. But to produce green hydrogen, you need green electricity, which can be nuclear or hydro or solar or wind power. So the key is really the sustainable electricity that then allows us to produce green hydrogen because water, the other component is the world consists to 90, 70% of water, the planet surface. So there's no, nowhere there's a shortage of water. And then we can use, for example, in steel making, we can use, we can replace Coke in the iron making by hydrogen. No, excuse me. Yeah, hydrogen. But we can also in steel recycling, we can reduce, we can use electric arc furnaces, which, so we can need the green electricity. And steel is really the, the key material because every product either uses steel or is made on machines, on equipment made of steel. So if we don't manage to transition to green steel, we shall never have green objects or a green industrial economy. Concrete and asphalt are the other two ma massive material consumption units and waste elements. These are more difficult because we, it's more difficult to reuse the ceramic uh, elements, but people are working. This unfortunately is what's happening at the moment in Europe due to the supply problems with natural gas. Now, nobody talks about climate change anymore or CO2 emissions. The only thing now is to get through the next winter without power cuts. And so several countries are recommissioning coal power stations. In Germany, even brown coal power stations, which is about the worst you can do uh, because they closed down their nuclear power stations, most of them. So at the moment that this short-term focus of policymakers to, for society to survive next winter will probably push us back with regard to CO2 emissions by several years. And we need a vision for the future and the vision must be long-term. And then we have to submit all our wants and wishes to, to fit into this future. Can you describe the founding of the Product Life Institute and how you work with different economic actors to bring about those changes in our economy and in society? Well, by training, I'm an architect, not an economist. And I worked for an American research foundation in the 1970s when we had the oil price crisis and unemployment in most European countries. And I knew from my activity in building that renovating an existing building is more labor intensive, but uses only little, few energy, little materials. And so I thought this might be true for other products too. And I managed to convince the then called Commission of the European Communities 
to give me a research fund to study the potential for substituting manpower for energy. So basically, my driver was job creation and energy re consumption reduction. The environmental benefits of longer service life basically come as a collateral, come automatically with it. So if you double the lifetime, the service life of, a, of any object, car or a house, if you double the lifetime, you reduce the input of resources and the output of waste by 50% without changing anything at the product. So the key element is time. We have to include time in our economic optimization. That is the most difficult question because it's basically the young people that decide what they want. In parts of Europe, now the young people, for example, some people no longer have a smartphone because they say no, Nokia is completely sufficient for phones. And if I want to go on the internet, I use a tablet or a computer. So the, if the young generation can really see what they need and not what they want, also with regard to clothing, and then we have a chance, they have a chance to create their own future. But it is really the education, it is giving this wish, this want, like Santé-Exupéry said, that the wish to, to go sailing, the wish to become sustainable, and then you adapt the way you live. It doesn't work the other way. We have to convince the young generation that they become sustainable lifestyles and then they impose it on us. I don't think it works the other way. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.